Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. We're in the last few weeks of a presidential campaign, a campaign that at its core is about convincing you to vote for a certain candidate. There's only one problem. Most people aren't interested in being convinced of anything. We go to the same places on vacation, we buy the same products, we use the same services. In an organizational setting, we stick with the programs we did in the past and are reticent to try new ones. Um, And in part, it's because of this thing called the status quo bias. Jonah Berger is a professor of marketing at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. In his book, The Catalyst, he writes about how you get people to change their minds. And as anyone who has studied campaigns can tell you, It isn't by relying on data. We think if we just provide more information, more facts, more reasons, um, even more emotional appeals, people will go along. Um, But what's so interesting, as many of us know, is is that often doesn't work. Um, And so what the book's really about is, well, if if pushing doesn't work, you know, could there be a better way? Could there be a better way to change minds and, and drive action, whether we're a campaign trying to change people's minds about politics, whether we're a company trying to change a customer or consumer's mind, or whether we're an individual trying to change our boss's mind or our, our spouse's, you know, is there a better way to do it than, than pushing? And if so, what is it? Berger argues there is a better way. And the convincing part of it has to start with the acknowledgement that people don't seek out change. They're tied to the way they've been doing things and to the way that they've been thinking. A famous 1979 study at Stanford asked opponents and proponents of the death penalty to look at studies on how effective it was. Now, these were not real studies, but the people in the study thought that they were. So one showed that murder rates dropped in many states after the death penalty was implemented. So doesn't the death penalty work as a deterrent? Well, the people who already supported it thought, yeah, that study makes good sense. That's a solid piece of research. The people who didn't believe that the death penalty was a good deterrent thought it was a poorly done study. They didn't pay much attention to it. The same happened when roles were reversed. People who were against the death penalty were shown a study with data backing up the notion that the death penalty is not a good deterrent. Ah, good study, they thought. The pro-death penalty folks thought it was a poorly designed study. They mostly ignored it. The Stanford authors said, it's clear. People's identities and beliefs are so intense that they, quote, can survive the total discrediting of the evidence that first gave rise to such beliefs. As many scholars who study politics and the art of changing minds will tell you, most people who think they vote on issues don't. They vote on identity. And that is hard to change. We often use party as a cue to what to decide. Well, I don't know. It's a complicated issue. I'll just go along with my party. And that's in part why I think you see particularly Biden, but Trump some as well, really staying away from party-specific things and focusing on, on broader issues where they think they can get some of that middle to move. Which is one particularly interesting aspect of this year, Berger says. We may be looking at a moment when so much that's familiar has been thrown up in the air. For many of us, life is a lot different than it normally is, and shifting our voting patterns may be more possible than usual. But Berger emphasizes two things about those shifts. First, successful appeals are often not fact-based. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris's website highlights the phrase, battle for the soul of the nation. 
President Trump famously wanted to make America great again. Well, there's no numbers, no facts, no data in either of those slogans. Second, getting people to shift works best if the shift is incremental. And, you know, if we ask people to do too much, they say, well, no thanks, right? It's too far away from where I am at the moment. I'm not going to do it. But a great way to, to get them to make distance and make a big change is, is to start by asking for less. So I, I talked to this doctor who had a great, a great example of this. Um, she was dealing with this obese trucker. So a guy who um, was you know, morbidly obese was drinking three liters of Mountain Dew a day. Um, and in case that's not clear how bad that is for you, that's like eating, I think, 30, 35, maybe even 40 Snickers bars uh, a month. So it's, it's a lot of sugar. Um, not surprising that he, he's obese. And so she was thinking of doing what most doctors would do in that situation, which is say, well, quit cold turkey, right? Stop drinking Mountain Dew. It's bad for you. You shouldn't drink it. Don't, don't do it. Um, but what she realized is if, well, if I do that, he's just going to say, no, thanks and ignore me. And, and to take the same idea in politics, right? If you say, Hey, you know, you're on one end of the spectrum, completely switch to the other. Most people say that's beyond the realm of possibility. I'm, I'm not even willing to consider it. So instead what she did is she, she asked for less. She said, look, I know you like Mountain Dew rather than drinking three liters, just try drinking two. Right? You can still drink Mountain Dew, just drink one liter less a day, fill that extra bottle up with water, put it in the cab of your truck. And the guy said, oh, I don't want to do it. And he grumbled, but eventually it took him a couple weeks. Eventually he was able to do it. And the next time she comes back to her office, she says, great, you know, you did a really good job. Now go from two to one. He didn't want to, he grumbled again, didn't want to do it, was eventually able to go down to one. Then he came back and she said, great, you did a good job. Now go down to zero. And it took him a while, but eventually he got there and he lost over 40 pounds because what she did is she didn't just ask for less. Yes, she did start by asking for less. She made an ask that was at least within the realm of possibility and was something that he was willing to consider. But once she did that, then she asked for more. Essentially what she did is she took big change and she broke it down into smaller chunks, making it easier for someone to take that first step, move a little bit in the right direction, and then maybe a little bit later, move a little bit more in, in the right direction. And so whether we're talking about you know, getting someone to lose weight or we're talking about moving someone on the political spectrum, I think that idea of asking for less and chunking the change and really starting with something small and then ratcheting it up is a, is a great place to start. Um, you actually take this into the political realm, you talk about um, the question of alcohol legalization um, in Oklahoma in the 1950s, where I didn't realize alcohol was still uh, barred, I think, in most, most contexts. Um, but you were kind of trying to show what people will accept and what people will not accept. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. And I think we have this intuition um, that asking for a good amount is a really good idea. Like, you know, uh, think about a, a housing negotiation, for mm. example, right? What do you do to start? You start by asking for something that you know the person's probably going to say no to, but you assume that, well, by going back and forth, eventually you'll end somewhere in the middle. And so asking for more initially is good because then you end somewhere in the middle and the more you ask for to start, the further away the middle is and so the better off uh, you are. Um, and so that's sort of what this study looked at. It said, hey, let's, let's take some people um, uh, who you know, may support prohibition, some other people that may be against prohibition, and let's see if we can change their views with different, different appeals. And so basically what they did is they asked people, okay, you know, look at a set of statements and say which of these statements best describes your view. 
on, on uh, prohibition and, and alcohol. And so you can almost think about a football field of beliefs, right? Where in the case of prohibition, for example, you know, very, very for prohibition, very anti-alcohol uh, might be on one end of that field. Uh, and on the other end of the field would be very uh, anti-prohibition, very pro-alcohol. Think about the same thing in politics, right? Easy to think about liberals, very extreme liberals on one end of the field, uh, very extreme conservatives on the other end of the field. And so people can array themselves somewhere on that field. They might say, well, I'm not extreme in one way or another. I'm sort of in the middle. Maybe I'm on the 25-yard line about prohibition on, on one side or the other. A complete moderate might be exactly uh, in the middle. But they said, okay, you know, show us where you are on this field of, of beliefs. And people did. And then they said, well, take a look at a variety of different statements uh, and tell us, you know, what you're willing to consider and what you're willing not to consider. Um, and so basically what it did is around each point in the field, it drew a set of boundaries in, in some sense, close to people as a zone of acceptance. You might be on, I don't know, the 20-yard line of one side, and you're willing to consider five or 10 yards in one direction and information that's five or 10 yards in the other. But, you know, more than 10, more than 15, more than 20 yards is too far away. And so there's a, a zone of acceptance and a region of rejection, essentially a, a set of things you're willing to consider, information you're willing to consider, and, and things that, that you're not. And what they did then is they gave different people different appeals and they saw whether those appeals changed their mind. And, and they found something quite interesting. That appeal that's further away, well, we might think it's good because it moves people more in the direction we want them to go. Because it was so far from where people are currently, because it fell in that region of rejection, they weren't even willing to consider it. They weren't even willing to consider the possibility of that information because it was too far from where they were at the moment, where the more moderate appeal or sort of a small appeal, asking to just change a little bit in one way or another, was actually more, more effective. And a colleague of mine actually did a neat... Um, version of this in the political domain recently. He's a sociologist at, at Duke, and, and he was interested in, you know, can we close the political divide by giving people information? If we give, uh, you know, Republicans information about liberals and vice versa, you know, if, if people just talk to others on the other side of the aisle, things would be much better. It's filter bubbles are the problem. People, you know, don't talk to people from the other side. If they just talk to others, things would be better. And so what he did is he said, great, we'll have some liberals follow some conservatives and some conservatives follow some liberals on social media, give them some information about the other side, and we'll see if that's enough to, to close the divide. And he thought this would work. He thought it would be really effective, or at least somewhat effective in moving people in the right direction. What they found was the exact opposite that giving conservatives information about liberals made them even more conservative, not less so. And giving liberals information about conservatives actually made them slightly more liberal rather than more conservative. Because the problem is when that information falls in that region of rejection, when it's too far from where we are currently, it's so far away we're not even willing to potentially listen to it. We basically just shut down. Hmm. Um, and so we need to make sure that information we give people is at least within that zone of acceptance so they're willing to consider it in the first place. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Jonah Berger. He's the author of The Catalyst, How to Change Anyone's Mind. He's a marketing professor at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. So I think a lot of people are probably wondering, okay, then how do you convince somebody, you know, a family member or something who, you know, disagrees with me on this particular topic? How do I, how do I convince them? And you tell this really interesting story of Virginia who is trying to uh, convince this voter, Gustavo, to change his views on transgender rights. This is a real story. Um, do you want to talk about that? Yeah, sure. So 
um, uh, you know, to set the scene a little bit, this is sort of uh, in, in Southern Florida. Um, uh, someone named Virginia sort of knocks on this uh, door. She's a political canvasser. Um, uh, and she's going around sort of getting people's attitudes around this, um, uh, this uh, ballot initiative around uh, transgender rights. Um, and their hope is to sort of get people to support transgender rights. And they're, they're not going to force people, but, but that's their hope. And so she knocks on this door. Um, and she's sort of asking, you know, hey, uh, how do you feel about transgender rights? And and the guy that opens up is this uh, gentleman named Gustavo. And he's sort of, um, I don't know if uh, you've ever seen the Buena Vista Social Club, but the best way I can describe him is like a member of the Buena Vista Social Club. He's got like, you know, one of those hats on and sort of the Gabayana shirt on. And he's got a sort of, uh, you know, undershirt underneath. And he's sort of an old uh, South American uh, South American gentleman. And so she's kind of asking him, you know, she's going, oh, how do you feel about uh, transgender rights? You know, I'm giving you a scale what number on that scale feels right to you. And uh, he sort of doesn't, doesn't support transgender rights. And you might imagine sort of Virginia, who, who by the way is, uh, is transgendered, um, uh, might just say, well, forget it, right? Mm-hmm. There's no way I'm going to change uh, his gonna, mind. I, yeah. I, yeah, he's not going to happen. I, I should walk away. Right. Um, but that's not actually um, uh, what, what they do. Um, and uh, I think they had a really interesting approach and a, and a really uh, interesting way to think about it. So um, uh, Virginia instead uh, started talking about their partner. Right, they started saying, "Hey, you know, um, I'm I'm transgendered by by the way, and um, you know, this is my partner, um, and you know, why I care about this issue uh, is because I'm worried that they won't have rights, that we won't have rights together." Mm. Um, uh, but she does something else, uh, or sorry, they do something else that's um, quite interesting, uh, also. Um, You'd think Gustavo has his, his beliefs uh, and uh, Virginia has uh, theirs, and there's no way that they're going, going to meet at the middle. Um, but Virginia also does something quite clever, which is they say, hey, um, tell me about someone that you love. Mm. Um, and Gustavo goes, oh, yeah, well, I, I love my wife. And, and uh, Virginia goes, okay, well, tell me about your wife. And so they start having this conversation about why Gustavo loves uh, his wife and his wife is disabled. Um, and even though she's disabled, um, he still loves her and cares for her. Um, and once they've gotten there to the sense of like, Oh, you love your, you love your spouse. That's when Virginia goes into, well, I love my spouse and my spouse is transgendered because what she, what they really cleverly do is they say, look, me just going right into this political issue is not going to solve it, right? Going back to that football field, right? I'm on one part of that field. Gustavo's on the other. Um, and if I just jump into what I want Gustavo to do, there's no way it, it's going to work. And so in some sense, what I have to find is what's called an unsticking point, right? A point in which both of us agree that's almost on a different part of the field. Like think about a football field and then think about a perpendicular line coming up in the, in the middle of that field. Let's start with a place in which we agree. We both love uh, our partners. Let's talk about that for a minute. And then let's use that as a point to jump off to something else, right? Gustavo talks about his partner. Um, uh, Virginia talks about theirs. And they use that as a point of common ground to then move in the right direction. I was going to say, it's, it's interesting because you know, you've got these two people who seem like they're starting on like, as you say, like two completely different ends of the spectrum. But the approach is, oh, actually, we're on the same side, the side where you love the person that, you know, you are married to or partnered with or whatever. But but right. Don't we have a lot in common? And they and like the, the switch is to that frame. Yeah, it's almost like switching the field is, is yeah, you know, yeah. the way I, I talk about it in the book, right? It, it, it's very easy to focus on that field where we're on opposite sides. Yeah. And if we focus on that field, we're going to be on opposite sides. And yes, we can ask for less and we can do a variety of other things, but we're still on a field in which we're not on agreement. But there's not only one field of life. 
right? There are sure their political beliefs, there are food preferences, their sports team beliefs, their um, whether we like our spouse or not. And finding another field on which we actually have a lot in common and we agree, that's a great place to start. Right? Because once we both say, oh, how much we care about our spouses, now suddenly this question of transgender rights isn't this obscure um, sort of you know, theoretical discussion about, you know, I'm Gustavo, I, I don't like them because of something someone said once when I was growing up. Now it's about loving one's spouse. Well, hey, everybody should love their spouse. And if that's the frame with which I approach this issue, I'm much more likely to support it. In, in a different case, this wasn't Gustavo, it was someone else. They knocked on the door. There was a, a military veteran um, and they got into a conversation about what it feels like to be ostracized. Um, and the military veteran did not support transgender rights at the beginning, but, you know, talked about, oh, you know, it's really hard for me to get a job coming back after the war because people didn't want to hire a veteran because they had these associations with a veteran. And, and then the person doing the canvassing said, you know, that's exactly what I feel like as a transgendered individual because I don't have rights. Well, now suddenly that transgender discussion is, is not about, oh, this, you know, what is it might be like to be a transgender person, it's what it's about like to be ostracized. And the person there can really experience what they've like because they've had that in a different area of their life. So, you, know, you talked before about how uh, this is a moment where, in, in a lot of ways, people's lives and kind of habits and the way they do things have been um, re- really changed because of, uh, be- because of the pandemic. And I wonder if we sort of bring it back to the political campaign we see unfolding, if you think that this kind of upending of things and maybe even to bring in what we were just talking about, this almost like changing of the normal political field that we always see see ourselves on, like there are liberals on one side and there are conservatives on the other side. If, If things could be very different this year, because in some ways the field feels fundamentally different. I think that's exactly right. I mean, you know, we have the backdrop not only of COVID and the economy, but of Black Lives Matter. And mm-hmm. there's a, a lot of things going on where, where people are, are waking up to realize things, you know, we might want things to be a little bit different than they've been in the past. And, and maybe not just a little bit different, but eventually, eventually quite different. And so I, I think the hope is certainly that things move in, in that right direction. And um, and I, I think people talk about the country being divisive and, um, you know, whoever wins the, the next election, there are going to be a set of people that are very upset about it. Um, and I think the bigger question, and, you know, I and everyone listening to this probably has their own feelings about who they want that winner of the election to be. Mm-hmm. But I think regardless of who wins, you know, a bigger question is how we can come together a little bit. Because um, being as divisive as it's been the past few years, um, in the long run, is not going to be good for, for anyone. And so, um, you know, if Biden uh, wins, as it seems like he will, you know, one question I, I think is a good challenge for liberals is not only to make sure that Biden wins and we have all the good change that happens, but how do we bring some of those more conservative fo- folks into the fold a little bit so, you know, next time around it doesn't go the opposite way and, and something else happens? How do we create more of those bridges and, and not focuses on, on the, the places where we disagree, but really use the places where we agree and the, the science of barrier removal to really get people on the same page? Jonah Berger is the author of The Catalyst, How to Change Anyone's Mind. He's a marketing professor at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Jonah, thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me. On our website, we've got more about the science of persuasion and how voters can and can't be moved. That's at innovationhub.org.